Brian Stan here with ASEP Frontline, joined by Dr. Jack Perkins, another East Coast fellow with myself, hailing from the Virginia, Virginia Tech region of the world. And uh, we, we're going to hit on a top topic here, one that really is one of those things in emergency medicine that seems to grind our gears more than anything when others are telling us how to practice based on stuff that doesn't have really, really, really firm grounding and, and standing in in the evidence. And so we're going to get some clarity, kind of see where we are with the diagnosis of sepsis. You know, every patient that comes in from your parking lot who twisted their ankle and has a smoking history and has to walk more than 20 feet is now tachypnic and a little bit sweaty, sepsis screen positive, making sure you're getting all that stuff on board. So uh, we're going to talk about some of that stuff and, and where we are right now. So uh, Dr. Perkins, thanks for joining us here on the front line. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Ryan. Yeah. So tell us, tell us a little bit about where are we with sepsis? The good news is there's still evidence out there behind some of the bedrocks of sepsis care. However, concerning in the past year was the passing of the one-hour bundle by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. This is very problematic, and even though ASEP and the Society for Critical Care Medicine have specifically said do not roll this out in your emergency department in the United States, There are clearly some hospitals that are going after this, assuming that the CMS will adopt this as part of the core measure for sepsis, which is very concerning. So right now, we have the sepsis core measure, which was passed in 2015, about four years ago. And right now, that is on a hospital compare, which many hospitals are still taking very seriously, and they're assuming it's going to become value-based purchasing, which is going to affect the bottom line, which is why hospitals are paying so much attention to it. So now there's a lot of panic and misunderstanding out there with the one-hour bundle, assuming that this is going to change practice. I mean, the very top of our Hippocratic Oath says, do no harm. Right. And at some point, and I understand that early identification of sepsis and the administration of antibiotics has been shown to be the greatest determinant of decreasing morbidity and mortality. But at the same point, you get over your skis, and next thing you know, I mean, you're, you're doing harm to people. And there is not a zero harm when we're doing these uh, medications and bundles and things on patients and getting that one-hour bundle. Just think about it. So... You've hammered on the point here. It's really interesting because when they wrote the one-hour bundle, one of the things they specifically said that was they were comparing this to STEMI management and the progress we have made as a healthcare system for dropping the mortality for STEMI less than 5%. But if you think about it, in my perspective, at least STEMI management is one of the most simplistic things that we do in emergency medicine. You have a story, you have an EKG, cath lab is activated or not. On the flip side of that, you have the most complex disease in medicine, which is sepsis. And the one-hour bundle, the three-hour, but they're all assuming that you're making a correct diagnosis Mm -hmm. with the limited information you have available to you at time zero. That's really tough to do. And if you're also thinking about just the antibiotic piece, yes, the most evidence that we have to support anything in sepsis is behind antibiotics for those patients in septic shock. However, three years ago, when the Surviving Sepsis Campaign came out, the IDSA came out and said, even though they were at the table for the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, they said, we're not endorsing this for to go blindly giving antibiotics to patients Mm -hmm. who are not in septic shock and severe sepsis and assuming they're going to get benefits. That's a big leap of faith. And we may be causing some harm here with resistance, with C. diff, and most harmful of all, giving a bunch of antibiotics to people who aren't actually septic. 
Oh no, and that and that is huge, and that is one of my big concerns. I mean, we're seeing, you know, the idea of we're going to start them early and give them antibiotics early, and, and and if it's not sepsis, it's no big deal. You know, we're dealing with multi-drug resistant infections in multiple areas. We're dealing with an aging population who everybody's susceptible to C. diff. I mean, my uh, young nephew, when he was about five, three or five years old, got C. diff because as a primary care practitioner kept giving antibiotics for supposed ear infections or whatever was happening. And, you know, we've got, but we've got populations that are significantly at risk for C. diff associated complications. And it seems like almost uh, daily now, my patients, I've got patients in the emergency department being evaluated that have a history of C. diff colitis. And, you know, not to mention the other aspects where my computer is all of a sudden telling me that I need to give this patient 2,500 cc's of fluid uh, or that 30 cc per kilogram bolus because of whatever metrics or things that it used to get there. And are we plugging those away on patients where we are causing iatrogenic harm that would not have happened? And that concerns me significantly that we've got, you know, potential stuff that we could call somebody who was maybe had a little viral syndrome, maybe had COPD or exacerbation, or maybe even uh, you know CHF. You know the symptoms that can all be very similar uh, to these types of things, and we we're causing harm in a situation where honestly we would have they would have done fine if we would have just left them alone. Versus coming in and trying to check a box, get a metric, make sure that you have the proper banner on the front of the hospital and doing stuff that's actually harming the patients that we're trying to take care of. So I think there's a couple of pieces here that need to be really understood by the listeners who are providers out there in all sorts of different settings. Uh, One of the pieces is that nobody's arguing that a patient who comes in febrile, hypotensive, and Mm -hmm. they just look terrible, and you are secure in the diagnosis of sepsis, that early antibiotics that are broad spectrum and aggressive IV fluids, that is the person who is going to need it. But at the same time, if they come in and sepsis is somewhere on your differential and you're blindly giving that person antibiotics, that's what the IDSA is saying. That's what a lot of the critics of the core measure saying is like, take time, work through your differential. If they're septic, yes, give them antibiotics. Possible they don't even need broad spectrum antibiotics. Maybe mm-hmm. they need tailored antibiotics. Even the difference between a fourth generation cephalosporin, cefepime, and a third generation ceftriaxone, the difference is pseudomonal coverage. Well, eventually that's going to come home to roost when we have a pseudomonal resistance from cefepime because everybody's been getting it. So, like tailored antibiotics for the right patient is a big deal. Likewise, it's mind boggling to me that in the surviving sepsis campaign, it says. If the patient needs 30 mLs per kilogram, but they're already fluid overloaded, intubate them and keep giving them a 30 mLs per kilogram. There needs to be some discretion here as to who gets 30 mLs per kilogram, because that is a very arbitrary number. And really what they're trying to say, and this is not an argument, like patients who are sick and they're hypotensive and hyperfused, they need aggressive fluids. Mm -hmm. 30 mLs may not be the right number for that person. They need to have exactly what they need and no more. And that's the issue is... That's the recommendation of just intubate and continue acts like that intubating somebody and sedating them and or potentially paralyzing them has no potential risk to it. So you're taking, so let's even say it is sepsis and I give them the appropriate medications, RSI, to intubate them. Now I'm completely increasing the risks of a vascular collapse because I'm kind of relaxing and taking out a lot of that drive 
and all of a sudden the patient just collapses because I'm giving fluids that, sure, the data shows that administration of fluids, and not really of any amount, but just anything fluid-wise, does decrease mortality. But that's probably because, not because of the volume, but honestly, because of the differential and the consideration of actually looking at the diagnosis. You know, the, the whole correlation is, does not indicate causation type of thing. Maybe they're not even related as much as the whole idea of even the EMS study that showed the placement of an IV decreased some of the morbidity and mortality of certain conditions. Well, is it because they placed the IV or because they were concerned enough about the appropriate diagnosis and conditions that could be at play that they placed an IV and thus had other therapies or treatments that may have actually had a decent impact on the patient outcome. And so I think there's, to me, the, the cart is in front of the horse on this sepsis. You know, we have good intention and we have some indication, but it's almost that we had just a little spark, and so we just then threw gas on it and let the whole thing blow up. A very good corollary here is going back about 15 years to the core measure on pneumonia. Mm -hmm. Seemed like a good idea on paper, antibiotics early for patients with pneumonia, but once you tie it to money for the hospital, things can get out of control. So I was actually practicing when the core measure for pneumonia was in place, and I remember distinctly having a very busy emergency department, nurses coming to me from triage saying, Dr. Perkins, this patient has a fever and a cough. Will you please write them for a dose of azithromycin so we can check the core measure box? No evaluation of the patient. I know nothing else of them. Clearly just checking a box and not mm -hmm. necessarily doing what's right for the patient. And five or six years later, the core measure gets repealed because they realized that they had made a mistake and we were doing harm to patients with this particular core measure. I see a lot of similarities here. Now, it's important to understand that the hospitals are coming at this from a very reasonable perspective. If this gets tied into money and reimbursements, we're talking about potentially millions of dollars at stake for some hospitals and very understandable that they would be concerned about making sure that they meet the metric. However, there is some middle ground between like patient care and trying to meet the metric at the same time, which in my experience, if you're going to the hospital from the business side, that's the way to sell it, saying we need to find common ground here to get your metrics met as best we can, but make sure we focus on patient care. And there is a way mm -hmm. to do that. It's important to understand. One of the first things that Levy and uh, Dellinger would say about the bundles is that if you look at the article that came out this year by Pepper et al. in Critical Care Medicine, it was a meta-analysis of 17 different bundles. And clearly, bundles do save lives. But if you really read the article, what it points out is like all the bundles were heterogeneous, meaning like they had different times for both the antibiotics, different mm -hmm. fluid requirements, different times for the fluids. So it was not apples to apples. And really the conclusion was the tenets of this were they got early antibiotics, they got aggressive fluids, and those patients did better. It had nothing to do with one hour, three hours, four hours, two hours. It's the principles of that which saved lives. And you can't just tie it to one bundle for everybody. Well, and your, and your timing is completely arbitrary because yeah. one hour and three hours, not one hour and three hour from symptom onset or from more of a systemic response. That's one or three hours from the time they show up in your emergency department. So there is, you know, it's, it's really incredibly arbitrary because one person may have come in after having symptoms for two days. Somebody else comes in after developing symptoms on the way driving by the hospital. So there's really, it is an incredibly arbitrary. And I understand, I understand where you have to set 
times in order to have some sort of metric or tool in order to, you know, set the standard, but doing so with just throwing at, you know, treatments and managements that haven't been completely proven or hashed out in terms of efficacious and have the potential of doing harm and have a screening tool to opt people in that is so incredibly sensitive but such low specificity that, you know, almost everybody comes in. I mean, we're, and right now we're getting into flu season and viral season for all our kids, and every one of those kids comes in, flags for sepsis. And there's no way I want to, I'm going to plug every six and eight and 10 year old who comes in the emergency department with a broad spectrum antibiotic when they come in with a febrile illness because they're febrile, they're tachycardic, they're tachypnic, which is completely normal responses to infection. Um, and so we are suggesting a severe illness just based on relatively normal responses. And I think that setting a time is decent for this fact of getting us thinking about it and to make sure that we address it and consider sepsis early. But at the same time, I think we have uh, severely overshot the runway on this one. And unfortunately, I think patients are suffering, but we're not going to get a thing that says, well, our surviving sepsis campaign actually killed this many people compared to the number that it saved because of it. So I go back to core measures. So the first one that came out made a ton of sense. It was very simplistic. It's a yes or no checks box. It was aspirin for acute coronary syndrome. Makes a ton of sense. Mm -hmm. Tremendous evidence behind it. And this makes sense that like no matter what size hospital you go to in this country, 10 beds or 100 beds, getting an aspirin for when you come in with acute coronary syndrome suspected is reasonable. That's a reasonable ask. But then extrapolating that and saying like it's also reasonable to have a core measure that has like 140 different check boxes for sepsis mm-hmm. is way too complex and not appropriate for different emergency departments. What their thinking was is that every patient who goes to any size hospital is appropriate to receive certain fundamentals of sepsis care, which is true. Aggressive fluids, early antibiotics, and I would say it's actually more important to have a little bit more stringent guidelines on smaller hospitals that don't do this a lot. So if you have a tiny hospital that sees like one truly septic patient every week, having a guideline that says like, here's the bundle we're going to complete within three hours— actually makes sense because your providers don't do that very often. Your nurses don't do that very often. I get that. But to say like, we need to do this in an academic center that sees septic patients every day. They're very familiar with this, Mm -hmm. but maybe they have a transplant population. They have a big heart failure population where now you're telling them 30 mLs per kilogram, but they have a very unique patient population. That's not the right thing to do. So I understand it for saying like, we need to improve the care of septic patients in smaller hospitals, but like saying that also would transition to other places. This is why like tailored therapy for your hospital system. How are you going to deliver best septic care in your emergency department? That's really the most important concept here. Where do you see us moving forward from here? I mean, there's a lot of pushback and then there's a lot of, you know, stonewalling when it comes to not wanting to listen or or change from the regulatory or or the standpoint of, of rules of how we need to practice emergency medicine. Where do you see us going with sepsis in the future? My opinion uh, comes from my own experience in negotiations with our hospital and along the same lines for the past three to four years. Essentially, I don't think that we're going to get the surviving sepsis campaign repealed despite best efforts and really good arguments to that point. Mm -hmm. This core measure is not going anywhere anytime soon. So I think with the core measure in place and especially with the thought it's going to be tied to money, 
we are going to have to deal with this with the hospital. So I think the best way to move forward is each individual department needs to look at like, what are our limitations and what are the nuances of sepsis care in our setting? And we need to sit down with our administration and find out what their goals are. If they're 100% in for the core measure and that's, they're not going to waiver, okay, then how do we make a proposal to them to incorporate best care Mm -hmm. within the confines that they have handed down to us? For example, in our hospital, our hospital went after the core measure. We decided that that wasn't most appropriate for our patients, but knowing that they were fairly inflexible about that, said like, well, okay, we need to incorporate something that's going to try to meet your metrics while providing best care. So we came up with something saying like, let's round on our septic patients in 60 minutes. We understand that most metrics fail with a repeat lactate and not giving 30 mLs per kilogram. So if we round on our patients, it provides great care to our patients because we're going back at 60 minutes to make sure our cultures are drawn, antibiotics are given. We're asking about source, which is really, really important. Make sure they don't have a surgical source that needs intervention. We're repeating the lactate to check that box. Whether you use it or not, that's up to the provider. And we're asking the provider at that time, like, here's how much fluids have been given. Do you want 30 mLs per kilogram? And the provider has discretion. They don't have to give it if they don't think that's appropriate for the patient. But if they think that's fine, finish it out, give them 30 mLs per kilogram, the hospital would be very pleased with you. We're also asking them to reassess the patient to make sure they're, whether or not they're volume responsive. So in our hospital, we use non-invasive cardiac output monitoring. We give them a small fluid bolus and see if their stroke volume goes up by 10%. If it goes up by 10% or more, they continue to get fluids because they're increasing their stroke volume. If it's less than 10% and they become hypotensive, we go right to vasopressors. So we kind of found a middle ground there, understanding that there's realistically in our hospital, no way we're going to have like, let's abandon the core measures completely. And I think that's probably representative of a lot of hospitals out there. So two questions there is how do we minimize, you have the core measure and the core measure is fine if you have relatively decent specificity. But now that we're coming to the viral season and, and everything else, and of course, in our, well, your area is, is going to be very similar to mine. I mean, we have a lot of smoking population, a lot of chronic lung disease. So, you know, there's a lot of people who meet sepsis criteria every single day. And with the screening tools we have now that they're coming in, you know, even if any of those come back abnormal, then it automatically transitions that suspected infection. And you, you almost have to say yes. You know, so, so many times I'm saying, so what was the, what, what are we concerned about with infection here? This is, you know, clearly somebody who was breathing because it came in from the parking lot. And they're like, oh, well, just because this vital sign was wrong or the white blood cell count was 12,000 or whatever it may have been, now automatically triggers the entire, now it's sepsis. So how do we decrease and minimize these false positives that I think are the biggest risk? I mean, if I'm giving antibiotics, broad-spectrum antibiotics to somebody who likely is at decent risk for uh, sepsis and, and significant infection, that, I mean, I think that's fine. But I don't want to be throwing broad-spectrum antibiotics at somebody who's very is relatively low risk for sepsis or even an infection at all. So to answer that question, the first piece is regarding the influenza in particular. The new IDSA and American Thoracic Society guidelines on community-acquired pneumonia just came out within the past month. And their recommendation is if you have somebody that comes in and you're diagnosing them with community-acquired pneumonia— mm-hmm and they pop positive for the flu, you should be co-treating those patients. Essentially saying that there's no way to tell the difference between bacterial and viral pneumonia. And a lot of them are actually infected at the same time with both a virus and a bacterial. Now, yeah, and then in, we were yeah. always worried about the MRSA super Absolutely. infection with it. I mean, Absolutely. it's uh, one of the major causes of death. So in our hospital, and this is something that we really try to 
come back once again to who are the patients in the best sepsis data that we have, Arise, Process, and Promise. Who are the patients that they enrolled in terms of like, those are the patients who had a lactate greater than four and the patients who are hypotensive mm-hmm. and you suspected sepsis. And this is, they were only enrolled after they got their fluids and after they got antibiotics. Okay. So you picked out the sickest patients, hypotensive, lactate greater than four. Now, clearly some of those patients with lactate greater than four may not have sepsis, but they're still ill. So those are the patients that we go after very aggressively with our aggressive fluids and antibiotics. Now, our hospital also wanted to do a screening in the triage. And now that's what you're talking about. Let's start flagging everybody who has two or more SERS criteria. So we came back at them saying like, let's meet you halfway. We're fine to flag people who have two or more SERS, but let's get a little bit more information. Let's run a point of care lactate. Because if they have two or more SERS and their lactate is four or higher, I want to see that patient now. Mm-hmm. And regardless of what their diagnosis, it may not be sepsis, but I'd yeah. like to lay my eyes on them and make sure, see what's going on. So bring those patients back immediately. They're happier with that. We've now put a screening tool in triage. We are working on what to do with like if their lactate is abnormal, somewhere between 2 and 3.9, but they also have two or more SERS criteria. One of the midway suggestions is to have our, we have a triage doctor at least look over the chart and say like, is this a 21-year-old who has strep throat, needs some fluids, or is this somebody who's sick and needs to come back? So kind of meeting them both ways in terms of like, we don't want somebody languishing out there in triage who might be ill, but at the same time, we don't want to go too far and fill up every one of our beds with college students who would just have a virus, maybe the flu or something like that. And then the flip side is, and I, where I see a lot of the fallouts is when we admit people with something relatively mild, maybe it's a urinary tract infection in an elderly patient, but, you know, we admit them because they're you know, because of some alteration of mental, you know, some of the, the common symptoms. You're not really worried about it. But then at some point during the hospital stay, there's sepsis put in the chart. And then all of a sudden, that rolls down, even if there was nothing that actually suggested sepsis. And it's just in there, and then all of a sudden we're falling out retrospectively. Yeah, that's tough. And so what you will find is if you involve critical care, in the emergency department management of sepsis, my experience is that it becomes more complex and it's more harmful than it is helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, The critical care department in most hospitals is used to managing sepsis once the patient has left the emergency department. If you invite them to come down and work on the process in the emergency department where they're not used to practicing, then you will see things kind of like that don't make a lot of sense for the flow of your particular emergency department. But if you can coordinate with them on the front end, sit down with your hospitalists in critical care and start talking about some of these issues, it's going to be a big boom to your, your hospital. Number one, well, you don't want our sick septic patients languishing in the emergency department. So at the front end, you have to get them on board because if you have those sick septic patients, you can't tie up your nurses one-to-one for hours and hours. And that's what they need. They need intensive nursing that is only available in the ICU in terms of staffing. So you're going to have to sit down with them one way or the other in terms of like, how do we get these patients out of here? How are you going to clear a bed for me? How are you going to write orders if that's the trigger for them to get out of the emergency department? And while you're doing that, talk about some of the things that like, you know, how are we, can we make it easier or better for you? Because they're taking the other four to seven day hospital course of these six septic patients and looking back through your chart. So getting on the same page with them early is really a big benefit for your patients in the hospital. Well, in this case, even the patients that come in and, you know, they got an elevated white counter, they have a positive blood culture. That's a good, great one. A positive blood culture, nothing else, but then it's diagnosis, discharge diagnosis, or a note that mentions sepsis, and then that's the one that does it. 
even though they've never had instability, they haven't had you know hypotension or a elevated lactate. Everything else has been normal, but because of a positive blood culture or whatever, that is getting thrown in the chart, and then that's automatically the ER failed. Yeah, so this is where having sitting down with the ED leadership as well as the hospital leadership and talking about those specific cases in terms of like, here's where we're falling out. Here are the issues. How can we resolve this? Mm-hmm. And it may not it may be a documentation issue, probably not a patient care issue, but they can be very frustrating because that's the feedback the emergency department is getting. But like sitting down on a multidisciplinary committee and trying to like hash those things out month by month and going through some of those charts, I really think that's the only way you're going to solve it. All right. Talking here with Dr. Jack Perkins. And how can folks get more information from you if they have questions about the episode, email, social media, whatnot? So jackperkins37 at gmail.com. Again, jackperkins37 at gmail.com. I would be more than happy to send you slides or information or even advice as to how to approach your hospital and provide better sepsis care that is evidence-based. And as for me, you can contact me, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com, youreverydaymedicinegmail.com, or at everydaymed on Twitter. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. Thank you, Ryan.